Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Let's hear now the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, relying upon God for His help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. And let's focus our attention upon verse 28. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 1, which says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then in verse 29, we see being filled with all unrighteousness. 
then midway through that verse, full of envy. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, full of envy. We've been in recent weeks and not so recent weeks considering this decline among the Gentile nations that Paul describes here. He not only speaks of individual human sin as the reason why Jesus Christ came into the world, but he also deals with sin in its collective impact upon society. He shows that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and he shows how they collectively, not just individually, but collectively and societally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And how there is this degradation that takes place. We think of, on the positive side of this, corresponding to it, the Christian life. Where you have someone who is regenerate. Someone who has the Spirit of God living inside of them. They are, as we say, definitively sanctified. They're a new creature in Christ. And there is progressive sanctification. And so, the believer who's indwelt by the Spirit is, in substance, holy But there is this ongoing progress and process of sanctification wherein they are increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. They become more holy, more righteous, and more into the image of God. On the flip side, you have the unregenerate person. The unregenerate person is under the wrath of God. They are totally depraved. They experience total inability. They don't have the ability in their will to repent and believe because they hate God. They don't want to do it. And they are definitively unsanctified, we might say. But at the same time, there is a progressive, or should we say regressive, corruption and a sort of progressive rotting away of the image of God and of whatever remnant of goodness and righteousness remains within them. Regressive corruption. It's important to understand this because there's no neutral gear. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you are a child of God or a child of the evil one, whether you're regenerate or whether you are still under the wrath of God, there's no neutral gear. You're either becoming more and more like Christ or you're becoming more and more like the devil himself. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 says, The path of the just, that's the righteous person, the believer who's righteous by faith and being sanctified in righteousness, the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. So, for the believer who's born again, They're definitively sanctified, new creatures in Christ, but that light of sanctification grows and shines ever more under the perfect day when they're made perfect in holiness in body and soul at the last day. But, verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. In other words, what was said of the light of the Christian is he's saying that, that you can see the flip side with the wicked, that 
their darkness is just as the light of the believers increasing, the darkness of the unconverted increases. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts were dark already, but their hearts were increasingly dark. They were increasingly wicked and ignorant. And God continued to give them over to this regressive process of corruption. And we've traced that process from ingratitude where people have something of the knowledge of God and the blessing of God, but instead of responding to it by glorifying God as God and thanking God for those blessings, instead they're ungrateful. And next they fall into idolatry. When God is pushed out, man fills the vacuum. And intellectually and religiously, Man becomes the measure of all things and defines even God Himself and His worship. Idolatry. And then we saw that when God is replaced with these weak, dead idols, no longer does the presence and knowledge of God restrain sin in the human conscience. And so, humanity is given over to immorality, fornication. And then eventually, that fornication bursts the bonds and and as a volcanic eruption spews forth perversion in human society and culture. Stage 4, perversion. Now we've come to verse 28, the final stage that Paul describes here, and that we've termed chaos. Chaos. You've got ingratitude, idolatry, immorality, perversion, and now chaos. This final stage of corporate decline. And you can see in our own day that perversion is not the last stage in cultural decline. We know that in recent years there's been a rise of homosexual perversion. And perhaps we thought that would be the be-all, end-all for Satan's agenda. That people would be engaging in homosexual behavior in their private life, in their bedroom, and that they could even get married. And that this was the full extent of perversion or of of this uh, regressive corruption. But we've seen just in the last couple of years that Satan is just getting warmed up. That the regressive corrupting power of sin has not even begun to reach its ultimate climax. And you see that with the transgender movement. Where now it's not just what people are doing in their private life. But it's people parading around the streets. It's people having their children receive uh, sex change surgeries as, as y- little children. They're, they're teaching their little boys to be little girls and their little girls to be little boys. And they're actually getting them hormone therapies and utterly corrupting these children and doing things that cannot be reversed. And many children now who have grown up through this are looking back and regretting what is taking place. But we've seen this transgender movement. It's not just perversion. It's not just sexual lust being fulfilled in the bedroom. But now, it's what bathrooms you can use and who's allowed to go in them. How do we define a woman? How do we define a man? Who competes in the Olympics in the female sports versus the male sports? My friends, it, it, it has gone from sexual sin to something that is utterly destabilizing of the entire fabric of human culture. 
we see this. If you look at the, uh, the slogan or the acronym LGBT, you can see the regressive corruption even in these letters. Even in these letters. Because by the time you get to the T, you're doubting how you were ever so uh, bigoted to ever buy into the L, the G, and the B. Think about it. LG, right? Representing female homosexuality and male homosexuality. These two terms are binary. There are two options. If you're going to be a homosexual, you're either going to be an L or a G. These are the two options, which seems so liberating just a few years ago, but now, all of a sudden, they're found to be restrictive. And of course, the B, the B, bisexual, oh, that's binary, you see. They've actually had to change the dictionary definition. I I kid you not. Um, They've had to change the dictionary definition of the word bisexual to, to basically mean multisexual. Because the, the bi, the B there, was so constraining and restrictive for people who have bought into the T. Transsexual means everything is turned upside down. Everything is turned on its head. There, there's no restriction, no limitation. So in a sense, the L, the G, and the B are just a, a representation of our bigoted past. And now it's the T and the Q and the plus so on and so forth. You see how it's the sort of movement like the French Revolution. It's all fine and good when Robespierre begins the revolution, but eventually he finds himself under the guillotine. We're now actually guillotining the L, the G, and the B in one way or another. So you can see we've moved from mere sexual perversion and self-gratification to chaos, destabilization, of the fabric of human society, which is, of course, uh, part of Satan's agenda. Well, what can we say of this final stage of chaos, which is described in verses 28 through 32? What can we say about it? Well, this morning what we're going to seek to do is just understand it in general, focusing our attention especially upon verse 28, but then with God's help, And God willing, in two future sermons, we're going to look at the structure of these lists of sins. Because there is a method to Paul's madness, if you will. Paul describes different clusters of sins and he moves from one to the next. And it's very important for us to understand that. So, God willing, we'll have three sermons on this set of verses. But the first, this morning, is simply an overview of stage five chaos. And you can see, first of all, when you look at verse 28, that there's a greater antagonism that is developing between stages 4 and 5. As we move from perversion to chaos, we see a greater antagonism developing. And so, if you go back to verse 18, we saw that the ungodly and unrighteous world of men has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That word suppress in the King James is that they held the truth in unrighteousness. They had it, they were holding it, but they sort of held it down. They repressed it, they suppressed it. But when you get to verse 28, which is in some ways parallel to verse 18, you you see that there's a, a greater antagonism here. It's not merely that they're holding the truth in unrighteousness, but verse 28 says, that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. 
So verse 18, they're holding it down. But verse 28, they're refusing to hold it at all. The word retain here is the word to hold. So verse 18, they're holding it, but they're holding it down. Verse 28, they're sick of holding it down. They just want to get rid of it. They don't want to retain it. They don't want to hold it at all. A greater antagonism against the revelation of God's truth and against God Himself. Notice that verse 18 speaks of them suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And then you move on to verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. But by verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So it's not just abstract. It's not just theoretical or propositional. It's not just that they're exchanging the truth of God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But they are actually refusing to have anything to do with God in their knowledge. It's personal. As Psalm 81 says when we sing that, um, God says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it, but my people would have none of me. They don't want anything to do with God's truth. They now don't want to have anything to do with God Himself. They're not just redefining God, they're rejecting God. They're refusing to hold Him, to retain Him in their knowledge. Isaiah 30 verse 11 describes this same mentality. Beginning in verse 9, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to hear the law of the Lord. Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Again, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, trying to shut up the prophets from preaching the truth. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. We don't want to retain God in our knowledge. We don't want His truth. We don't want Him. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. By the way, that's a reminder that when those who preach and teach the Word of God withhold the law of God and the truth of God from the people because they're afraid of it being offensive, that they're actually causing, in a sense, the Holy One of Israel to cease from being present and from speaking to God's people. But you can see the mentality. Cause God to cease from among us. We don't like to retain Him or to hold Him or keep Him anymore in our knowledge. You can see this greater antagonism reflected in verse 30. Haters of God. Haters of God. And... Lord willing, we'll get to that later. I think that's actually referring to blasphemy in context, uh, that particular phrase. But you see the greater antagonism. They hate God and they blaspheme God's name. So there's a greater antagonism in stage five. Secondly, greater arrogance. Greater arrogance. Even as they did not, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. 
What does that mean, did not like? We've reflected on that before. You see in our culture with social media, people like one thing, they don't like something else. There's a bit of a flippancy there where rather than considering the intrinsic value of something, whether, whatever it may be, rather than considering whether something is true and righteous, our main consideration is whether we like it or not. And we subject God to that. And you hear people say this sort of thing. Oh, I could never worship a God like that. Oh, I, I, just, I just can't, I can't imagine, I, I can't believe that God would do that. Or you have famously uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was uh, an atheist up until his death, who wrote the book that says, um, God is not great. And essentially made the case, God is not great, God is not good, God is evil. We should not like God, we should detest God, we should find God to be unpleasant. But it's more than that when it says they did not like to retain God and their knowledge, because the word like here is a very important word for understanding stage five. It appears again and again, this root of the word like in Greek. It means to reject or disapprove. It means to look at something and test it and evaluate it and find it to be inadequate, inferior, and defective. That's what man is doing in stage 5. You see the increased arrogance here where he looks at God and God's revelation and says, this is rejected. This word for like here is the same root as the word for debased. It appears again and again in in this set of verses. But it's the word from which we get the word reprobate. When we speak of those whom God from all eternity has chosen not to save, but to condemn for their sins. Those whom God has predestined unto destruction for their sins, they're the reprobate. They're the ones that are, that are um, rejected and disapproved and discarded and passed by. And you see man here having declared himself to be God. Having declared himself to be the sovereign judge of all things is now saying, no, I won't believe in a sovereign God who elects and predestines and who reprobates. But now man himself discards God, reprobates God. God is not great. God is not good. God God does not meet our standard, and so we judge Him to be inadequate. We reject Him. We disapprove of Him. God Himself is defective, and we cast Him on the scrap heap, and we reprobate God there's a sense in which reprobation is inescapable. Either God is reprobating sinners or sinners are reprobating God. But they did not like to retain God. They judged it to be uh, inadequate, inferior. They judged Him to be defective. So it's not merely, it's not merely corrupting God's truth or revising God's truth or supplementing God's truth or subtly undermining God's truth as we've seen in the previous stages of Romans 1, but now we have an open and categorical discarding of God and His truth. God and His truth are defective, subpar, and substandard. And those who violate God's Word, God's revelation, 
we're told in verse 32, which we'll get to in greater depth later on, but we're told that those people who violate God's revelation, who sin against His revelation in the conscience and in His Word, that they're not merely tolerated, but they are approved. Approved. Promoted. Greater arrogance in rebellion against God. Thirdly, greater abandonment. Stage five involves greater abandonment by God. God, we're told, verse 28, gave them over to a debased mind. I think a good, helpful explanation of this or illustration of this is in the prophet Daniel chapter 4. We did a sermon series on this not too long ago. When Nebuchadnezzar refuses to respond to the revelation of God that he receives from Daniel, when he refuses to give thanks and give God the credit for the great nation of Babylon, its victories, its prosperity, its great influence throughout the world. He says, this is the great Babylon that I have made, that I have built. Look at me. And so, you see Nebuchadnezzar following this pattern in general terms of regressive corruption in his spiritual life. Daniel 4, verse 16, God pronounces the verdict, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and that He gives it to whomever He will and sets it over, uh, sets over it the lowest of men. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. He gives them over just as He did Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to retain God in his knowledge, didn't want to give glory to God, didn't want to repent and humble himself at the prophecy of Daniel. And so God gives him the heart of a beast. He loses his reason, his rationality. He he becomes a beast, literally, in some sense. He he grows long fingernails like a, a bird of prey and long hair and he's grazing in the fields as an illustration of this truth of verse 28 that God gave them over to a debased mind. And it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar found a place for retaining the knowledge of God that stage 5 ended. You can see in verse 34 of Daniel 4, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. And he says, verse 37, I now praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose ways are truth and His ways justice. 
and those who walk in pride He is able to put down. So you can see with greater arrogance comes greater abandonment. And when does that abandonment cease? When He's no longer refusing to retain the knowledge of God. When He's no longer in opposition, in arrogant opposition to the true knowledge of the true God. And as we look at societies that are entering into stage five, perhaps our own, we'll say something about that later, but as we look at our society, we have to understand this giving over to wickedness, this giving over to wickedness will continue until we humble ourselves, a la King Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to continue until we make our confession the confession that he makes in that chapter. But until then, God gave them over. He gave them over to a debased mind. Or as other translations say, a reprobate mind. Again, it's that same root word. They didn't like to retain God. They judged Him defective. So God gave them over to a defective mind. A mind that has lost the capacity to make right judgments. A mind that if it were a scale, it would be, it would, well, as, as many of us find often, you know, we get a scale. Something's wrong with this one. I think, anyway, um, it doesn't work right. It's defective. God has given over the human mind to what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. The effect of sin on the mind, on its perception, on its wisdom, on its discernment and analysis. Man was utterly dead in trespasses and sins in stage one, but there's a regressive corruption of his mind so that he's now more than ever blind and numb and insensible. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. See, they're defective. Their minds are defective. Their intellectual and spiritual and theological taste buds are off kilter. So they they see something that is evil and they call it good. They see something that's good and they call it evil. And we're told that God has given them over to this. Not that God made them defective, but He stopped restraining the wickedness of their hearts from corrupting their minds. He stopped restraining. He pulled out the stops. He burst the dam so that the waters of iniquity just flow in a river of deception in their hearts and minds so that they genuinely look at evil and call it good. It's not that they really know it's good and you know, maybe deep down in their conscience, but they look at evil and they think it's good. They think it's desirable. They look at good and they think that it's evil. We encountered some people evangelizing yesterday, or while we were evangelizing yesterday, we encountered a bunch of people downtown in Detroit around the uh, baseball stadium who were collecting signatures for reproductive rights. And they were trying to get as many signatures as they could to to somehow fight against this recent court ruling that struck down Roe v. Wade. And trying to do whatever they could to promote abortion. And if you were to talk to them, they genuinely think that what they're doing is good. 
They have been given over to this debased, reprobate, defective mind to call evil good and good evil, to put darkness for light, to speak of the enlightenment, historically speaking, historians speak of the enlightenment in Western culture, which caused us to decline and to be darkened in our understanding in rebellion against God. They call that the enlightenment. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet. They cringe. We could read verses from the Bible, perhaps even the verses we just read in our Scripture reading, and there are unconverted people who would cringe at what Paul is saying. It would be bitter to them. It would be offensive to them rather than the sweet inspired words of the Holy Spirit. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They're defective, debased, reprobate mind. Uh, Isaiah also deals with this in Isaiah chapter 29. A chapter that all of us should be very familiar with if we're to understand what's happening in the church today in Western culture. Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 9. Listen to what Isaiah says here. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, and has caused your eyes, namely the prophets, and He has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you... Now listen, this is the truth of God's Word. It's not being preached faithfully. The people aren't hearing the pure Word of God. They become intoxicated with their own human opinions and ideas, blinded by sin. But listen to how the truth of God functions in their lives, how they interact with it. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this please. And he says, I am not literate. Therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. He goes on the end of verse 14 For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Listen, this is the church today in Western culture having been conformed to stage 5. We have gained a defective understanding of the Bible. If you read theologians and if you read sermons from 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, if you read theologians and preachers from the age of the Reformation, and you compare it with what we see today, if you look at the standard for what it takes to pass presbytery exams 200 years ago versus the standard that is in place today, if you compare us to the attainments of our forefathers in the church of Jesus Christ in Western society, my friends, you will find that this spirit of deep sleep has come over us. That things that in the past were obvious, the church confessed them, They didn't waver, not saying it was a utopia, but they were sound and solid on basic confessional truths. Today, 
just nothing but question marks. We're unsure. We're reevaluating. We're hedging ourselves. The Bible somehow doesn't speak as clearly. We open it up. Well, it's sealed. It's unclear. We can't really say for sure what the Bible says. Read this, please. Oh no, I, I, I can't. I'm not literate. People can't read the Bible for themselves. The knowledge of God's people on the whole from the least to the greatest has regressed significantly in the last couple of centuries. There's no doubt about that. The shorter catechism was memorized by children. The larger catechism by those of a more mature age when these documents were first drawn up. That in itself should be a culture shock for us in the church today. We have become diluted. We have become defective and to an extent blind and numb and insensible to some of the most clear and obvious truths of the Word of God. We've been conformed to the pattern of this world rather than being renewed and empowered by the Word of God, which is not a sealed book. Nonsense. It's not a sealed book. Open it. Read it. The Holy Spirit will make you literate to understand it, to apply it in your life. But we've been, we've participated somewhat in this abandonment in stage five. Second Corinthians four says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the glory of the gospel. This word that's translated here, reprobate or debased, or defective appears in other places in Paul's writings. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, these are the uh, Egyptian magicians that in Jewish tradition, which Paul is citing here, apparently it's accurate, these Egyptian magicians went along with the Israelites out of Egypt, went along with the Jews out of Egypt, and were told resisted Moses. So do these also, these false teachers in Ephesus that Timothy's dealing with, resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. Disapproved, that's our word. Corrupt minds, disapproved, debased, corrupted, disapproved minds, defective in their knowledge of God's word. But Paul elsewhere speaks of the solution to this. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove. That's the same root as the word we've been tracing here throughout these verses. The renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So rather than having a defective, debased mind that can't prove and discern what God wants you to do, by offering yourself as a living sacrifice and as refusing to conform to the world and transforming yourself by doing these things, you will have a renewed mind that you'll have an accurate, capable mind for discerning the will of God from Scripture. Now when we don't have that, we do things that are not fitting. We do things, we're told in our text, that are unsuitable inappropriate, we might say unseasonable, impractical, things that are unwarranted, inconsistent, senseless, irrational, unnatural, or as the King James says, inconvenient. 
as Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9 says, we're like a, a raging war horse that just rushes into the battle without thinking. We do things that are foolish as a result of this defective mind. And you can see the greater degree of sinfulness in stage 5 by these words in verse 29, filled with all unrighteousness. Not just unrighteousness, but filled with it. Saturated with it. Consumed with it. Filled with all of it. It's more abundant. It's more pervasive. It's more prevalent. It's more deeply entrenched. There are greater and greater degrees of sinfulness such that you say, well, in my generation, we never would have done this. And then it goes on. And then the young people get a little older and they say, well, in my generation, we never would have even conceived of this. And it just keeps declining and degrading further and further through this regressive corruption where they're filled with all, with ever-increasing unrighteousness, full of envy, filled with these vices. And as we said, verse 32, they not only do them, but they approve them. They encourage them. They advertise them. They subsidize them. They celebrate them. They mandate them. They legislate them. And my friends, we see all of these things just beginning to rear their ugly heads in our society and in our culture. Not just the doing of it, but the approving of it. Was it in the 1980s that laws against homosexuality were struck down as unconstitutional? Something like that. So now people are doing these things. It's not long before now you get in trouble if you don't approve these things. And yet they know They know the judgment of God. Verse 32. Knowing the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God. They know, and yet they continue to rebel. They continue to suppress. They continue to discard the God of the Bible or the God of Revelation. Well, what applications can we make from these points? Greater antagonism, greater arrogance, greater abandonment. Three points of application. First, we need to discern the signs of the times that are evident all around us. Jesus speaks to the religious leaders of His day and He rebukes them for their insensitivity to the signs of the times. Matthew 16, 1-3, the Pharisees and Sadducees came, they tested Him, they asked that He would show them a sign from heaven. Jesus responded in this way, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky. In other words, you can predict the weather. You can look at the sky You can look at those meteorological reports, right? You can can predict the weather. You can discern the sky and the weather, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. My friends, we should not need a sign from heaven to reveal to us what's happening in our own day. We don't need inspired prophets to be giving uh, you know, daily news updates and telling God's people, this is what this means, this is what that means. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Bible. And we have our own two eyes to see what's happening around us and to discern 
the signs of the times. It is a wicked and adulterous generation that can't discern those things apart from some special revelation or some sign from heaven. And sadly, the church today is all too much filled with that wicked and adulterous spirit where our eyes are closed and we can't see what's happening all around us. That in fact, we live in at least the very beginnings of stage five in terms of this regressive corruption of human civilization. And we need to look at passages that are relevant for this so that we can understand what God is doing, that in fact God is sovereignly giving us over to this. We can recognize the reasons for that. We can see how we as the church have been conformed to that and committed many of the same sins. We haven't been the salt and light that we should be. We can meditate on these things and learn from what God is doing in our own day. 2 Timothy 3 says, but know this, that in the last days, which is the the New Testament period, perilous times, literally perilous or evil seasons will come. This cycle of Romans 1, don't think of it in, in a linear fashion. Think of it in a cyclical fashion. That every society that rebels against God, every culture, every nation that rebels against Him, is likely to go through a cycle that is very similar to what we see in Romans chapter 1. It is a seasonal, cyclical thing. Don't think that because our culture is at a certain point in this cycle that we've reached the second coming of Christ. That is not to understand that this, as Paul says here, is not a linear sort of thing. It's a seasonal, cyclical pattern throughout the new covenant period, the last days. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. He goes on, many of the same sins as Romans 1. And he speaks of the impact of these things upon the church and upon the society. We need to look at these lists of sins and we need to discern the times. Now, While I say that, let me also say that's an encouragement to us as believers of the truth of the Word of God. When you read Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 3 and you see this cycle taking its course in our society, does that not fill you with greater assurance of the inspiration of the Bible? Does that not provide greater uh, confidence in the Word of God that something that was written 2,000 years ago knows us to a T is like a mirror, as as James says, we look into that law of liberty, we look into the Word of God, and we see that it is revealing who we are as individuals, who we are as a society, and the, the regressive corruption that is evident even today in our own land. And I would submit that if the Bible knows that much about our nation, then you'd better pay close attention to it. If you think, well, the Bible says this, I'm going to ignore that and take my chances on Judgment Day. I'm just going to go with the flow the way most people are living. Dear friend, that is foolish. If God is not who He says He is, and the Bible is not the true and faithful Word of God's revelation that accurately reveals His law, His gospel, His judgment, if that is not the case, how do you explain Romans chapter 1? How do you explain that it describes us and the process of degradation that we're presently in? It's an encouragement to our faith in the Word of God. 
it also shows us what we ought to do. The men of Issachar understood the times so that they would know what Israel ought to do. We're told that in the Old Testament in the Chronicles. So we need to understand the signs of the times so that we can know how we ought to live in those times. Second application. Biblical optimism. Biblical optimism. A culture in rebellion against God that finds itself in stage five is in trouble. It's in trouble. We're not in trouble. Our society's in trouble. Now that may be inconvenient for us and you know, as the t-shirt says, gas prices matter and all of this, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that this is not our kingdom. This is not Christ's kingdom that is teetering and shaking and on the verge of collapse. This is the kingdom of men. This is the, the, the nation, the culture in which we live that is presently in a great crisis. Uh, Daniel prophesies concerning the various kingdoms that would go from, from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and then to Rome. And he describes this in Daniel chapter 2 as this great golden image. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is the head. The feet are the Roman Empire. And he describes this historical progression between his own day and the coming of Christ in the flesh. And he describes the downfall of this humanistic kingdom in this way. Daniel 2 verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Understand, Paul's writing to the Roman Christians. This is the Roman Empire. A couple of centuries, a few centuries before it fell. This is the world empire that is dominant in Paul's universe at this point to the people that he's writing. Daniel tells us that this Roman Empire that's gone through all these stages, eventually hits stage five, that this Roman Empire represented by the feet has feet that were partly of iron and partly of clay. In other words, it's partly strong and partly fragile, partly brittle at the base. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as the iron does not mix with clay. The feet, the foundation of this humanistic kingdom is weak, it's fragile, it's brittle. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now I ask you, do you think Paul was writing this with a pessimistic attitude? As he's describing God giving over the Roman Empire in the first century to all of these many sins and perversions, my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. He's describing the downfall, the collapse. He's describing the increased fragility and weakness of Satan's kingdom, of this humanistic Roman Empire which was opposed to the Gospel. And he knew full well that the kingdom of the God of heaven, the kingdom that he was proclaiming, would break the Roman Empire in pieces. That the king of kings, when he is described in the book of Revelation, has feet of bronze to crush the serpent's head. Feet of bronze, unlike the brittle feet of the Roman Empire, which were easily destroyed by that tiny little stone taken 
uncut by human hands that was hurled at the foundation of Satan's kingdom and which is sure to turn into a great and mighty kingdom throughout all the earth, consuming and breaking in pieces all these humanistic kingdoms. So we need a biblical optimism as we look at these things. This is what we see in our day is a cyclical uh, judgment upon a rebellious culture. And that cannot but be good for the work of the gospel in the long term. Uh, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. Do we believe that? Do you believe that God is a consuming fire? Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. If you believe that God is a consuming fire, listen to Deuteronomy 9, 1-3. through 3. Just listen. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. When you think of our nation coming under the feet of King Jesus and being discipled by the Gospel, do you think of this insurmountable wall that that is just built up to high heaven, fortified into the sky? There's no way that that could happen. Well, that's what the Israelites would have thought when they looked at the cities and the nations of Canaan. A people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Are you intimidated by stage five wickedness? Do you think that it's just going to continue and like cancer it's going to spread and it's going to devour the church until the church is on its last leg? My friends, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Well, the Lord can. Verse 3 Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. Is He still a consuming fire today? I hope so. That's what the Bible says. He's a consuming fire. If He went over to conquer Canaan in some typological fashion to to point us to the truths of salvation, um, how much more is He going to go with us in the Great Commission to build His kingdom throughout all nations? He who goes before you is a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. So we need a biblical optimism. Read 2 Timothy 3 verse 9. That season of wickedness and perilous time ended with the perpetrators being found out and defeated by the truth of God's word. Well, we've said much. Our third application is simply a transition to next Lord's Day or till the next time we take this up. And that is self-examination. Are we conforming to the pattern of this regressive corruption? Are we losing our saltiness? Do we find ourselves in these lists of sins? And I would say probably if we look closely, we will find ourselves. And so, moving forward in the next two sermons with God's help, we're going to examine ourselves with a careful analysis of verses 29 and 30 so that we can uncover where we've been conformed to the pattern of this world so we can repent and by the grace of God be renewed in our minds.
to approve His will. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for Your Holy Spirit. We pray that Your Word would not be a sealed book, but that we would be a sealed people, anointed with the Holy Spirit, that we might have our eyes open to behold the wondrous things of Your law, that we might be as Ezra who studied the law of God to know it, to do it, and to teach it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.